0: Today's reading is taken from Daniel chapter seven, verses one to 14. In the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea four great beasts, each different from the others, came came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming like with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. destroyed.
1: Amen. Not many people know this about me but I felt stirred to to share. For obvious reasons I don't talk about it uh, very much about my past Um, but as a teenager I was in a gang and the the gang was called Youth Orchestra. (laughs) Well um, well, many of you perhaps spent your youth wasting time um, on your BMX playing football or having actual fun in any number of ways. I was the guy who, who spent his Saturdays in rehearsal, stood at the back of the orchestra whilst other people played their, their instruments. My job was to count through hundreds of bars of music in which my sheet of music instructed me to definitely not play my, play my instrument, which was smashing two big cymbals. Uh, together, typically at the end of the piece. And if you weren't very good and diligent at counting through your bars of music, you could very easily miss your one moment to um, smash the two bits of metal together, which I did from time to time. Anyway, uh, I was actually in another gang. Um, This one was called Drama Club as well. Um, And I thought we'd resurrect a bit of the Drama Club fun this evening. Uh, And so I need four volunteers who... um, there's a spectrum of people who think drama is a very scary thing, and those who think it's a brilliant, wonderfully fun thing. You don't need to be a serious actor for today's performance, um, but nevertheless, probably people who are kind of not too terrified of, um, of looking silly, really, in front of a lot of people. So um, we're looking for four people. First, four hands can, can get this, this. Don't be shy. We've got one. We've got two. We've got three. Come, come to the front. There's one more space. There's one more space. Yes! Okay. I don't need you just yet. But if you just wait in the way, it's better this way rather than, you know, we break the flow later on. So if you just stay right here, ready to go, you four, in just a couple of minutes, we'll get into our production. Thank you very much for your willing. Okay, back to orchestra gang. And um, from time to time, we'd have a break in between um, me counting bars rest, uh, a break in rehearsal, and... And I remember this one time, and the, I was hanging out in the, in the break between rehearsals with my orchestra gang, and one of my friends, for some reason there was a Bible just lying around in the, in the space where we were rehearsing, and he had this, this Bible was placed in, that, in the hands of my friend, and he was holding court, uh, just flicking to pages at random, uh, reading out random verses, and... Uh, Everyone was in hysterics at how ridiculous this book was. How ridiculous that so many people think this is so special. I mean, just so random. Israelites and Ninevites, descendants and kings and uh, beasts and strange things like that. How could this book um, ever, ever be taken seriously? What, what a joke. And everyone was laughing except me uh, because I, was, I, was, I knew I couldn't laugh. I knew this book was something special. I didn't really have anything to say so I did that classic mode of resistance where I sort of just kept very quiet in one corner and, and just went red. I don't know if you ever know that woman. Um, how I wish, how I wish I could travel back in time to that moment and as my friend is in full flow, just, oh cheekily offer a few, few bits of context to the different um, passages that he was reading, or even just make the, the humble suggestion that just possibly there could be some, some good reasons as to why these particular words were remembered and were written down and were preserved and were passed on and have been treasured for thousands of years by, by so many people. Just maybe there's some good reasons, even if they're not immediately apparent at the first glance of a 14-year-old boy. Who knows, um, that would have been fun. But nevertheless, the question remains for us, how could winged leopards and horns with eyes and mouths that boast, all of that, have really anything valuable or meaningful or significant to say to our lives today. Actually, this chapter is one of the most significant chapters for making sense of the whole of the biblical narrative, for making sense of human history, and for understanding what it is to be truly human. To get to that, we're going to have to uh, lean in. A little bit. We're going to need the help of our, our dramatists here. Um, are you up for it? Here we go. Your bi- not yet, not yet. Wait, one minute. Your Bible that you have in front of you or on your phone is, is not just one book, but it's a little bit more like a bookshelf. Have a look at this picture. It's a little graphic to, um, to, to demonstrate. You've got 66, no less than 66 books you're carrying around if you carry around um, a Bible like this. Um, Most of them are what we refer to as the Old Testament, um, or the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, which, fun fact, is just a kind of amalgamation of abbreviations of Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim. Put it together, you get the Tanakh. Anyway, that's the Old Testament. That all happened before Jesus. Then, the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension... And then the writings that follow uh, are, making sen- are the, the writings of the first generation of the church making sense of what just happened with Jesus. The subdivisions just evident in our, our kind of simple bookshelf graphic start to hint that there might be some different genres, some different styles. Um, you can already see the different times that things are coming from. There's the, it's not supposed to say Jesus's blogs. It's supposed to say Jesus' biographies. Um, LAUGHTER I'm sorry about that. Um, So the first four books in your New Testament are these biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read these Jesus biographies, you will see that Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself is not Jesus Christ, not the Christ, that's a word that means the Messiah. People were trying to put that on him, and it seems there was sort of vague competing notions as to what the Christ was. There were these expectations of the Christ, the Messiah. But Jesus resisted that word on the whole. Instead, he preferred to talk, to him, talk about himself as the son of man, which is a confusing one. What was he getting at? If I say to you, my precious, <laughs> straight away, you guys are experts in your um, Oxford audience, experts in the local... Writings, um, Lord of the Rings. You you didn't even need me to tell you that I was doing an allusion there to Gollum. Okay, Jesus. Let's take an example of Matthew 26, and I've got some of the words up here. Those who had... This is Jesus. He's just been arrested, and he's up before Caiaphas, the high priest, the teachers of the Lord, the elders, they've all assembled, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. Why, Why are they there? They're looking... For false evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death. The high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. These guys were experts in the, the left half of the bookshelf, the, the Old Testament, the, the Tanakh. This is, this is like me saying my, Gollum, my very bad Gollum impression to you, Jesus dropping the most obvious illusion, and it caused such a stir. What, what had he meant by that? That is what we're going to get into, and so we need to lean into Daniel, very nearly ready for you guys. Um, but not quite. Um, do you know the, the Bible project? It's a wonderful thing and a really great resource for digging deeper into understanding this often confusing book that is the Bible. They make these graphics and these posters and these short videos. This is one for Daniel. You can see the book of Daniel, along the very bottom line, they just visualized how some of it is written in the language of Hebrew, some in the language of Aramaic, and then the last bit in Hebrew again. First chapter's in Hebrew, the next Six chapters in Aramaic. Let's zoom in on the Aramaic ones, and you see that there's some patterning that is at work in this sort of Aramaic core to the Book of Daniel. Um, At the top, we've got these chapters two and chapter seven, which are concerning us today. Have these two dream sequences, which we're going to be fleshing out very shortly. Um, In the middle, there's there's a similar theme with these tribulation scenes, these testing scenes where. Um, uh, the the friends are put into the fire or Daniel's put into the the lion's den you notice there's sort of a similar similar dynamic going on in those ones and then chapters 4 and 5 this father and son king, these two proud kings that are humbled in in dramatic ways and so it kind of follows this mirror image pattern going through this isn't random, rubbish weird literature, this is thoughtful, to be respected to be kind of meditated upon? What is, what is the meaning of these, these patterns, of these symbols that are going on? Maybe I'll be getting into a little bit of that now. Now is the time. Up we come, our actors. And we're going to start with chapter two. Okay. And I suggest, um, I suggest that uh, because of your hair, that you take the role of, the of uh, we'll get to the line in a second. In, in, chapter two, in chapter two, there's a statue. The vision, it's, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel has to interpret. And the statue has got four layers to it. So why don't you come up to the top here. Um, and then you can, be, you can be his shoulders. So if you sort of kneel down there. Kneel down? Yeah. And then you be the head of this statue. Because there's four different materials of this <laughs> statue. And then, Lucy, why don't you come in front. Oh, okay. And um, so this is gold, silver bronze and Michael at the feet, you are the Iron Man, if that's okay. So the legs of iron. um, Ah, it's it's all going to get confusing. It's getting confusing. Okay, it's got Iron Man written on the top here. So anyway, we've committed now, so we'll carry on. So this is the vision in in Chapter 2. There's this strange sort of like statue, this dream that he's had, that Diana has to interpret. And the interpretation is that each of these different metals are a succession of kingdoms, a succession of kings. The iron legs have got an unsure footing. They're a mixture of iron and clay. And what happens in the dream, and this is where we need all your skills to come out, is that there's this stone. It says this stone that was cut out not by human hands is the rather pregnant sentence there. So this stone came and it smashed into the feet of this statue and then all the bits went flying and then what happened is this stone grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth so this stone that was not cut out by human hands is talking and let me quote directly from from chapter 2 verse 44 in those in the time of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed that's what the interpretation of this strange dream is all about. Okay, then we get to chapter 7. And this is where the volunteers come into their own. Okay, break. <laughs> and, up. and here's where we need you, all four, up up, up here. And, um, okay, now then. Lion. <laughs> so we've got four beasts. Each, what we're going to do is, it's sort of like, I think, performance sculpture. I think we could think of it like that. So, um, if you take your positions, one, two, three, four. Same order. So Lucy, you're over here. there we are. Okay, great. Okay, so number one is um, a lion walking upright um, with a human heart. Do you think you can manage a human heart? Excellent. <laughs> Number two is a flesh-devouring bear with a few spare ribs stuck in his mouth. So standing up on one side, it says, you go for that one. You're going to have to hold these for a couple of minutes. (laughs) Uh, Number three is a four-headed, this is going to be hard, four-winged beast. Four-winged, four-heads, how are you going to do that? (laughs) Give us a few wings. It's yeah, a four-headed, four-winged leopard. Excellent. OK, Michael. This is the big one. Ten-horned super-beast. There he is. At this point is when my friends from my orchestra gang come in, and they look, and they're like, see? What on earth is all of this this Bible stuff all about? Notice how, how some of them have some semblance of humanity. Um, but it, it is like a humanity that's turned beastly. Again, we won't be su- because we've been familiar with the dream of chapter 2, we won't be surprised to learn that each of these um, beasts, these strange beasts, are representative of different uh, political situations, different, different arrangements, human arrangements of power that are turned beastly and are imposing themselves violently and um, creating damage and using and abusing people in there. These oppressive systems of power is what is going on. In contrast, and here's probably where we need our rector Stephen to stand up. In contrast to... Stephen, we do need you to stand up at this point. In, you're the son of man figure. I don't, hope you don't mind. <laughs> All right. Will, it's over to you. And this is a picture of, of flourishing humanity right here. As it, as it is supposed to be. Okay. What are we up to? Who knows? Okay. This peaceful, loving, flourishing, God-reflecting, picture of holy humanity is, is the original design. That was the whole point, in contrast to these beastly arrangements that we seem to get ourselves into time and time again, that human history is littered with. At this point, we're going to give our volunteers a big clap and send them on their way. Thank you so much. Okay, how are we doing, all right? Verse 21 of chapter 7, a troubling development. The horn of the super beast is allowed to defeat the saints, the holy ones of God. And this is deeply troubling to Daniel as he's seeing this in his vision. So far, his friends have gone through the fire and not been burnt. He's been thrown into the lions and not being eaten. This is a new sobering reality. This, is, this literature is not pretending that there's no struggle or pain or loss or even defeat. But it is insisting that there will be a day of judgment, that in the end, the beast does not win. Some of it's kind of a bit of a, a head spin. <laughs> I was trying to get, kind of get into this genre of literature. What's not complicated is that deep intuition that I think each of us have in our bones that goodness and truth are real and important and substantial, that all evil and corruption and oppression and injustice, that it will not have the final word, but it will face a judgment, that justice matters to God. That is what this is saying. On the 9th of April in 1968, over 50,000 people are gathered, and they're linking arms like this, and you can go and watch it on YouTube, and they're singing together, We Will Overcome. We Will Overcome. And the occasion is the funeral for Martin Luther King, who was shot days earlier. And they're swaying together. And as they're singing that we shall overcome, they're rooting themselves in that same assurance that truth cannot be crushed into the ground forever and that justice will roll one day like mighty waters. So imagine you were Daniel for a moment, and in your lifetime, you have seen your own nation overrun and lost, and you've seen some terrible things happening, and there's this the sense that there's some more terrible things that are going to happen. Writing down and sharing this prophetic dream, nevertheless, is an act of faith and of hope and of courage. A big question in interpreting this chapter of Daniel is, what's it pointing at? Is it a kind of a tight historical reference points of um, uh, different kingdoms and different empires, like the Babylonian Empire followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greeks, um, even followed by the Romans, um, or is it, and, and there's some great traditions of, within the church of, of pointing further afield. Now this is more epic, this is about things that are yet to be fulfilled. Interesting how Jesus doesn't really go down either the tight historical, um, uh, for sure there's, there's some truth in those, those reference points um, in the uh, creation of this literature. Uh, he doesn't go in for... He doesn't major on that, that tight historical events, um, nor does he project into a detailed map of the future from this. What he says, what he identifies, is a present dynamic around him. As he reads this stuff, as in Matthew 26, when he talks about himself as the son of man. He puts himself as the son of man character and it carries the implication to the power brokers of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, all the elders, the Sanhedrin, all of them that assemble. As he says that he is the Son of Man, it carries the implication that they are in collusion with the mega ten-horned beast at that point. It's like if I was to take a walking stick, slam it down, and say to you, You shall not pass! It's this clear, unmistakable allusion to myself as Gandalf, thank you. And by implication, you are the fiery beast. You remember on the bridge with the whip thing, ah, all goes wrong and they fall down and down. And it would be a funny joke, this sort of allusion, except that it's no joke. Jesus is in this situation facing his death as this sham court is looking to hand him over on trumped-up charges to the beast that is the Roman Empire, Jesus is not, is not, is not only claiming to be the one through whom that God's everlasting kingdom is being established, but also that they, the respectable elite, who surely thought of themselves as the holy ones of God, that they happen to be in collusion with the beast. And that's why they kick off. So when you read Jesus describing himself Preferring this language of the Son of Man in the Gospels, it is not him humbly playing himself down, resisting the titles of Son of God or, or Messiah. No, that's what you have said. What he's doing is he's bringing some definition. He's taking these perhaps vague concepts and he's being like he's adding some meaning to, as to what's going on. He's taking those popular ideas, resisting some of their political styles and implications, and he says, "No, this—what's going on around me." is the Ancient of Days, the God Almighty acting definitively to expose and undermine all of the beasts and establish through me, says Jesus, God's kingdom of peace and truth, the one that unlike every other human power arrangement that history has ever known, this is the one that will never be destroyed. And get this last point, in 721, where it says the righteous will be struck down, and then this movement towards them being vindicated and receiving this one true kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, It's me. This is happening with me. In the very moment of his arrest and apparent defeat, he's talking suddenly about coming on the clouds and establishing this arrangement of true power and authority that will never end. In contrast to all of the beastly kingdoms, that dehumanize and degrade and violently oppose themselves, this true kingdom is going to be established by this act of selfless love. At the very point that the powers are colluding to do their best to crush this one who's getting in their way, Jesus is laying down his best, a very different sort of best. They intended this cross, to teach a lesson to anyone who would cause a disturbance to the status quo. But this cross becomes the undoing. This cross becomes the lesson of the universe that schools all of us in the, the wonderful ways of God, the, the true nature of power and authority and the beauty of the love of God. Do you see it? Does it move you? Do you want to participate in this kingdom? Do you want to shape your life around this? I think it's good enough to give your life to. How might we do that? How might we participate in this kingdom? You probably think, my orchestra mates might think, oh, it's probably going to involve some otherworldly stuff, some rituals, escaping to the deserts to become a monk. No, actually, the sort of difference that Jesus invites us into. It's not otherworldly, it's not ritualistic or removed. It's loving your enemies. It's practicing forgiveness. It's radical generosity. It's chastening our impulses and our appetites that would trample over others. And that's what mature humanity looks like, right? No longer building our lives around those systems of chasing power and status and pleasure at the expense of others. When we give significant amounts of money away, at that point you know that you're no longer buying into the beast of greed, of of accumulation, of economy. When we seek to move towards forgiveness and reconciliation, no longer are we giving ourselves to some of those beastly, toxic tribalisms that just destroy all that is wonderful. When we carefully chasten our natural appetites for sex, for food, for alcohol, no longer are we feeding the beast of hedonism that spoils and, and destroys. When we don't, even small things, when we and subtle things, like when we don't dominate a room, but instead cross the room and befriend the lonely and, and use our little bit of power to encourage and lift someone else up. At that point, we're rejecting all of those systems based around human pride and self-promotion. And you're, part, you're entering into something so much better. And so now, when we take the bread and the wine, this defining meal for the holy ones of God, we're, shaping our, we're having our lives shaped around an act of selfless love. And it sets us free from all the ways that we've bought into the beast. And it beckons us into this new life of love, the most beautiful sort of life. Amen.